Hello and welcome to the Hall of Fame Movie Podcast. Listen to Matt Levy and Mark Rossi as they put their cinema studies degrees to good use and induct the best movies of all time into their own Hall of Fame. With no further ado, roll the camera. Well, hello there, Mark. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I'm doing great. How have you been? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. You know, we took a little time off, so we got to reset the batteries and be fresh as a daisy for this one. Yeah, we, you know, sometimes we record these either back to back or we got a couple recorded ahead of time, but we are finally catching up here. So it's been a little while and we are back with a movie today that I think you and me are really going to enjoy talking about. Yeah, definitely. It's it's probably what what led me down the path that led us to, you know, our major at Stony Brook was really the foundation of like, oh, I really like movies and different like auteurs and things like that. Well, I've always said that directors, they kind of go through generations and waves. And for our I think for our age group, there was the Christopher Nolan, there was Kevin Smith. You know, I've said before, you know, Spielberg and Lucas and some of those guys, Polanski, those were years before. Right. Really in our lifetime, it's been, you know, the, the Kevin Smith films, the Christopher Nolan films. And then I think a big other tent, I'm sure I'm leaving many guys out, but Quentin Tarantino was one of those major, he's always there every two to three to four years. Every time he says he's going to retire, he makes another film. Yep. But here we are, I think, with his most signature. People say it is his masterpiece. And it was his most significant film at the time. Definitely, definitely. Pulp Fiction was a landmark film for him, uh, obviously. And really for film in general. You know, it won plenty of awards along the way, but it really started the trend, I think, that continued. Ironically, we we were just talking about a Christopher Nolan movie recently, but the trend of having nonlinear storytelling in mainstream films wasn't really huge. But I think, Pulp Fiction and subsequent Tarantino films have made it so that it's like much more acceptable to audiences. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And as you said, we are talking about Pulp Fiction, the 1994 film co-written and directed solely by Quentin Tarantino. People categorize this film as a crime film, a comedy film, like sort of a black comedy. People say neo-noir. There's a lot of different words thrown out there, but this movie is... Very interesting and unique, especially when you look at the landscape of 1994, the way that the plot is driven, the structure of it, and just the way the characters talk and interact with one another. It's a very unique film. It's definitely very, very Tarantino is how we describe it now. But obviously, at the time, you only had really, you know, Reservoir Dogs and and some other films that he had penned that were lesser known and you know not as financially successful so it didn't have as wide a reach so people weren't familiar with it but this is like him bursting into people's you know living rooms and onto the big screens where people are really taking it in for the first time well take- there's a ton of like you know tarantino isms and, and signature types of of tarantino staples for his films that are in this movie that we're definitely going to dive into yeah some of the like you said some of the staple things that he's done in all of his films Some started prior to this in Reservoir Dogs, but most of them really started here. And just to give a landscape of prior to this, as you said, Reservoir Dogs came out just a couple years prior to this. That was his first directorial film. As far as major success, he had done some shorts and smaller things. That Reservoir Dogs was his first big, big movie. And that was still an independent film. And then after that, he actually wrote True Romance, 
which he didn't direct, but was not very successful. It's a movie that I happen to enjoy with Christian Slater, but it's not the most successful movie. This movie was his big break. This was a big break for independent films everywhere and a big break for, for Miramax. So this movie, as you said, was, was tremendous on a lot of different tiers. Yeah, it definitely was. It, it was really important to, to Miramax, you know, at the time to really legitimize, you know, themselves as being, you know, big players going forward from there. And, you know, obviously Miramax now as a name is probably pretty tainted. For- yeah. For for a good reason, but it as is, far as yeah. <laughs> yeah, as far as you know, looking back at the time when this this came out, it was a tremendous success for them, tremendous success for Tarantino, and you know, even from like the very opening of of the film, you're just introduced to his style. It's going to be like heavily dialogue, or you know, specifically monologue driven, with yeah, these these what become iconic, very memorable, you know, Tarantino runs. Yeah. And in 1994, you know, the the movie that he's making here with the, the list of characters and, and cast members that he has. And yeah, like you said, the, the, the dialogue and the way that it's driven with these monologues and these these banter, it's all very special looking back now. And let's start with the cast. I always find that's a fun place to, to start. And the cast on a, on a, for a movie like this, you look back now and you say, my God, these are some of the biggest names throughout Hollywood. But right. in 1994, some of them were extremely well-known. Some actually, their their status was risen tremendously by Pulp Fiction. Right. I'm really glad you said that. And the big star you're going to think of that's like first build is John Travolta, right? At the time, he was in the middle of like a major lull in his career. Like there were a lot of studios thinking, is this is this still a marketable, you know, marketable big name star that we can base a film around which is crazy to think of you know based off of all the success he had with Greece and and through like the 70s and 80s but he was in the midst of a major lull in his career and this really put him back on the map in a big way that continued for like another decade and a half after this so this film was really huge for him as well yeah John Travolta you're right you know Greece, Sad Night Fever, a couple of other films throughout that time but this was a very different part for him. I mean, there's much more violence and much more profanity. Yeah. Much more profanity than you usually hear John, who is kind of at that point, almost like the, the good guy in everyone's eyes. So to hear the profanity coming out of his mouth was also pretty shocking. Yeah, definitely. It was a, it's weird to to think about it, right. Without that, without that context of having him as Vincent Vega, you know, in, in this film, but yeah, prior to this, you know, he was kind of like, America's sweetheart for for a long time, you know, with uh, Welcome Back, Cotter, and then yeah. obviously Grease, Saturday Night Fever. So it, it's, it was a very different role for him. And I think obviously we'll dive into it more. I think he knocks it out of the park as far as a, a character specific, you know, in this film, he's like lovably aloof. It's so freaking weird, but in the best possible way. Vincent Vega's a great character. I love I love that character. Uh, it's one of my like great pains that they never made he never made the the Vega the Vegas Brothers movies that he wanted to. Totally. So. That would have been a lot of fun. And no stranger to profanity is Vincent Vega's partner in this movie, our friend Samuel Jackson who yeah. has sort of made of a career of, you know, using profanity and awesome over the top, sometimes hilarious, sometimes dramatic ways. 
Yeah, man, definitely. I I I stole Samuel Jackson's like character Jules was like the basis for my Counter Strike name was in high school and into college for like three years, and you know I briefly I, a friend of mine as well had the the wallet that said "bad motherfucker" on it, so it, it really made its way into the the cultural zeitgeist and into into that. And to, to leave the cast for a moment, just to talk about those two characters, you know, John Travolta and Samuel Jackson's characters have this banter and dialogue throughout the one of the first couple sequences of the movie. One talk about, you know, the Royale with cheese, where yeah. it's basically two men talking about burgers and then conversations later where they're talking about, you know, giving another man a foot massage. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny you to talk about because when you're, I don't know how old I was when I saw this, maybe in my teens when I saw this movie. And I'm thinking some person wrote these scenes and wrote this dialogue. And this is a award-winning and nominated film, but they're talking about hamburgers and, and foot massages. But that's just sort of the strength of this movie is that in between these over-the-top violent scenes, they're talking about silly, ridiculous things. Like it's any normal day. Right. I think that's where there's going to be always the, the disconnect. And this is where the, the con- I, I won't say controversy. This is where the line in the sand kind of is drawn, right? There are the people that, that find this to be brilliant. I'm on that side. And there are the people that find it to be just completely ridiculous. But I think you touched on it perfectly there is that, you know, you have these guys that are, they're hitmen, they're enforcers, but when they're not going to be talking about murdering people all the time, they're just going to have some conversations, right? Like I'll, I'll equate it to the other side of it. When you had end of watch one, one thing that made end of watch really great is that you have these two police officers just kind of BSing when they're in the car together, you're spending hours at a time with someone. You're not always going to be talking about, Oh, we're talking about this collar or this collar. There's talking about life. Is that the Jake Gyllenhaal movie? Right. The Jake Gyllenhaal, Michael Pena movie. So, these guys they're they're criminals but you know they're not always going to be talking about different crimes or different hits they're just going to be talking about just whatever and sometimes it's big kahuna burger or you know (laughs) massaging someone's feet i think that's really brilliant and it also ratchets up the tension because you're like why are they talking about this is something terrible about to happen and sometimes it does and you shoot marvin in the face by accident because you hit a bump (laughs) like it's it's brilliant because it it, you're you're ratcheting up the tension but also it it kind of paints the world in a realistic fashion where you're like, oh, these are just, these are just people. What's funny is they are just two people, but then the profanity and the violence are dialed up to 11. So they're very over the top. So you hear, you have these two guys just talking about their days. And then Mm -hmm. as you said, someone gets shot in the face or you see blood everywhere or, you know, other events throughout the movie, things are, and this is following in the steps of Reservoir Dogs. It's an over the top, violent in your face movie. And I think that I used the word controversy before. And I think, I think there is something controversial about Tarantino films because people have now grown to expect over the top violence, over the top profanity, but still casual conversation and dialogue amongst people of all walks of life. It's a really unusual balance, right? It is. Uh, yeah. He, he kind of, he kind of toes the line. Actually doesn't even toe the line. He kind of jumps on both sides of the line <laughs> where you have these types of hyper-realistic, mundane conversations about nothing and then hyper-violent, really like ratcheting up the use of profanity and and <laughs> racial epithets and everything sure. you could think of. But, you know, within the characters, 
themselves i think within the movies usually they always feel true to the characters there's always going to be controversy when you have a white character particularly because tarantino chose to portray it himself like dropping the n-word with the hard r but i think within the movie itself it, it still feels genuine to the character and it's not to excuse it it's to just provide the proper context it's not always the you know the responsibility to excuse things away but if you're providing the context to say all right this person just shows up unannounced to your door and there's an ex dude in the back of a car that's like has his face exploded in you're you might use some colorful language in anger <laughs> right i don't know how i'd react i don't know uh, i'd like to think i wouldn't be the one that's dropping the n-word i'm pretty sure i wouldn't but there's a I, there's a, a sense of realism to be like well, dude what did you bring to my house it's definitely an extreme situation so right right there's no way how to know how we would react but I think the way that John Travolta and Samuel Jackson's characters react are, like you said, accurate and real to the way that they're they're acting within the the, the rules of the world and the and the right. their jobs and their occupations and it all feels natural. It all feels real. So, going from there, we have tons of more celebrities. I mean, you're talking Bruce Willis next, who at this time it was probably still in the mix of some of the highest of highs as far as his career. Yeah. He's still, you know, we're a year away from that gem of a diehard film, personal favorite diehard with a vengeance. He's still a, a big name guy. You have, you know, uh, a staple of the, I think Tarantino's using him in other films briefly. You have Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, obviously he plays a, a big role in this, you know, as far as the formation of of the new path for samuel jackson's character jules and you have uma thurman who becomes you know after this probably one of tarantino's biggest muses with the kill bill franchise. yeah i would say she probably got the biggest jolt to her career from yeah, this absolutely yeah like you said tim roth harvey keitel love keitel's character in this he's really like that suave the cleaner you know the the guy who cleans up the messes yeah. and then he also got rosanna arquette chris christopher walken ving rames I mean, you're talking about a cast here that any one of them can lead a movie. And here you have 10 people from top to bottom. So it really never, you never feel like in any scene as it jumps around, you never feel like you're seeing, you know, C-list or D-list actors. You always feel like you're seeing stars. Which is crazy to think about, right? Even if you think about Tarantino's first film, you had Reservoir Dogs, you have big name actors in that film and this film and that's kind of been a staple for tarantino is that you have all these big name actors that see his scripts and are familiar with you know the worlds he builds and want to be part of it but this is early in his career and you're pulling big names which really speaks to i think the way that he directs and and a reputation that he built really early on and that, he brings out some of the best in his yeah. actors too i mean i know you've talked about previously how you love one of his newest films, uh, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. In yeah. Hollywood. And I think, you know, you got great actors in Leo and Brad as the leads, but he pulls out two of one of their best performances. And these guys have been killing it for years. So it, right. I think people just want, as you said, they want to work with him. They've seen what type of films he makes. And I think they, he just brings people in. Yeah, he has a vision. You know, there are lots of things you can say about Tarantino. He's controversial for, you know, 
some of his filmmaking techniques, you know, like I, I remember, and we'll discuss this at length, I'm sure, in a future episode, just as an example, in Inglorious Bastards, there's a strangulation scene where he insisted on being the hands that strangled the actress Diane Kruger, and he like actually choked the shit out of her and left like red, red marks on it. And she hasn't really spoken out about how, as, as it being a terrible type of experience but like little jarring but he has he definitely always has a vision for the feel of his movies and that's not just always you, you think about a director as being someone's more about the cinematography setting up the shot but he really does build the world with the dialogue and also the soundtrack like in each of his films especially in this movie the soundtrack is like a character in his film you have, you know, Dick Dills, Mizulu, you have Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. All of these different songs become kind of tied to these different moments and are like interconnected and inextricably linked. Like Steel is Real Stuck in the Middle with You from uh, Reservoir Dogs where the character's cutting an ear off. Like Was that Michael are... Madsen dancing right. around? Yeah. Right, dancing around. Like, so he does like such a great job. He has such a great feel, I think, for building his soundtrack properly and sometimes taking really obscure types of songs and just making them part, just an equally important part of the film. Yeah, I think he really understands all aspects of film. He obviously has studied film. He understands how important breaking the fourth wall making a good story, making strong right. characters, and then playing with, as he does, with profanity and violence and dialogue to to make the audience kind of on edge at times. But as you said, he knows really knows how to play with music. And Reservoir Dogs, he did it first, and here he does it again. I think you have some some music, and I think the, the big scene people always think of is, is Uma Thurman and John Travolta dancing. And that has become sort of a it's been paid homage to that scene, them dancing, the music, that whole scene has been sort of played with and, and joked around with, but it's now a classic scene in film history. Yeah, that definitely is. It's, it's an iconic scene. And I think it was Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell. It's, yep. it's, it's great. You have, you have them doing the twist and that's a, a phenomenal song, uh, song and scene. Yeah, you could tell he's just a lover of film, right? We talk about people that are students of film. He didn't go to you know, a film school, he just, he just took in as much film as possible. He's just a lover of film that worked at a video store where he, you know, was a clerk that would check in videotapes, which is the thing that people used to do in a sentence that makes perfect sense in 2021. <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, he would, he was just a clerk at a video store that loved movies and just took in like every type of genre and then kind of blends them together to make you know, his own creation that pays yeah, homage to I all mean, these different genres. You got Western in there. You got, you know, samurai films in there. You have all different he pulls from. I mean, it, it, it is partially a comedy. It is partially a drama. I mean, it's pulling from all sorts of of, of, of types of genres of film. And, and there you kind of get a Tarantino film. And, you know, the plot structure and the story, I think, are interesting to discuss because it's, it's easy to take most Tarantino films and say, oh, it's all about the dialogue, the, 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 the comedy, the violence, but they all are very plot driven. And you can take, as you said, Inglorious Bastards, you could take Pulp Fiction and several others, and there's a coherent, well put together story. And this one is, is very much chronologically all over the place. And yeah. it starts with the, the diner scene, uh, the holdup, with uh, Tim Roth's character. 
And then it kind of shifts from one storyline to another, uh, then returning to the diner, coming kind of full circle at the end. Yeah, it, it's kind of jarring. I remember when I saw it the first time, it was very jarring. But by the time you get to the end, it makes it makes kind of perfect sense. You know, with Star Wars, they have like the machete order where you stop in the middle of it and then you're like, oh, you introduce yourself to the characters and get the, the story fleshed out. And that's kind of how this movie ends up being structured, right? You have the diner scene, you have uh, Honey Bunny, and I forget Tim Roth's character's name, but they, they say, cool, it's a robbery, and you see the other patrons, and then you're kind of introduced to who those patrons are and who's Vincent Vega and who's Jules. Yeah, uh, each of the characters kind of weave and interlude into one another. Right, right absolutely. And and then it, it you kind of then bring it back in to the diner, and you see where it goes from there and what path they kind of get set on. What's strange for me is, one, how some characters actually are killed throughout the film, Mm -hmm. Then they'll return in later scenes because it actually takes place earlier in the movie. Right. And the other scene that maybe I'm in the minority here, the scene that doesn't work for me at all Mm -hmm. is the Christopher Walken scene with the gold watch. I think it's, 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 it's very much, I understand what Tarantino's going for and what Christopher Mm -hmm. Walken's doing there. And for them, I give them an A plus, but you can, for me, I could cut that scene from the movie and be better off. Just, yeah. It just it pulls me out a little bit. Maybe I'm in the minority there. I, I I think I think you have a point, right? It does pull you out of it. It's it's comedic. It's the purpose of it is just to be like to to show why Butch is is so intent on making sure that he gets back the gold watch, right? Right. And, and what his motivation is, it's like oh, this was you know in he held he held it in his ass so that <laughs> that would be taken away when he was in Vietnam. The other so, the other weird scene I feel like the is gimp. brought up the gimp. I was going to say that <laughs> where where Bruce Willis and I think Marcellus are tied up. Yep, Marcellus Wallace, yeah. Yeah, that's a rough one. It's a rough scene and the first time you you sit through it and they get out you have that same like side relief that the characters do. You're like, oh, we made it through that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the I think what 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 kind of redeems it is like the two of them like we're never talking about this ever yeah. again. And you're like, I feel I feel similarly. We don't have to talk about the scene again. It's it's very uncomfortable. But he always kind of plays up into something you know that's uncomfortable there. Sometimes you know to his own detriment. But but I think. <laughs> In this case, it, it ends up working, although I can see why people are like, why did you need to do this? There are other ways you could have achieved the same type of goal. But, you know, he, he likes to do things to titillate and he likes to do things for, for shock, you know, shock value. There's no escaping that as, you know, being part of his films. But Yeah, no, I think he's been truthful and honest many times that he likes that shock value, that he likes to do things that can push the audience. and. Right and keep them engaged. And I think he knows what an audience is looking for or expecting. And a lot of times he'll play with that, especially with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you're expecting a certain ending. But here in Pulp Fiction, the ending is not as significant because the story does sort of circle around. So it's more like the segments and the scenes. It almost feels Mm -hmm. similar to a movie that Tarantino actually wrote a scene for is a movie called Four Rooms that came out a year or two after this. And he wrote one of the four rooms, which is like four separate sequences of a movie. And that's what this almost feels like. Yes, the characters do interweave with one another. And yes, the scene's kind of a flow, but 
they kind of have their own, each one kind of, kind of their own story going on between the boxer and the hitman and, and all the different stuff, you know, all going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's called Pulp Fiction because it's it's alluding to like the the pulp magazines the pulp where you magazines, have all these yeah. right you have all these different stories kind of interwoven together. I think it, the the movie really takes shape after you think about it after watching it. Maybe not as you're watching it does it really take shape, but the ending really I think to me holds up well and ends up being really I, I wouldn't necessarily say moving but impactful in that you know one of the two hitmen is really moved by the experience the near the near death experience that they have and decides to go on a different path and you know one of them doesn't and vincent vega ends up trying to take a crap while he's while he's you know sitting on on the you know after he he's trying to wait for someone to to kill him and ends up getting shot as he leaves the bathroom so the consequence is one of them stays in the life and ends up meeting an untimely end and the other one kind of has his come to Jesus moment, which is ironic given that he you know, has the Ezekiel 25, 17 speech that he likes to use. And he, he ends up you know, saving, if not his soul, at least his life. Yeah, totally. I, I love when he, he does the chant and does the, you know, the Bible readings. It's fun. So, yeah. you know, you spoke about it before, Mark, how this movie was, was impactful for Miramax. And, you know, say what you want to say now about Miramax and obviously a lot of, things we don't condone but as you said earlier miramax this was impactful for them we do not condone any actions of harvey weinstein but this movie was impactful too. miramax they went on to you know produce and get behind a lot of tremendous films Uh, independent cinema has never been the same since then and the movie made over a hundred million dollars in the u.s box office and over 200 million internationally it had a small budget. I think he'd made this on like a $20 million budget, give or take. So with the cast that he had, and there's no tremendous set pieces or action, but there's, it still feels like a quality made movie. It doesn't feel like, you know, something that was made by a guy, you know, with a camera running down the street. This feels like a major motion picture film. And this, I think, has been tremendously inspirational to, to filmmakers everywhere. It definitely has been. It's been a movie that was well-received critically at the time. And, you know, retrospectively, a lot of filmmakers now and for the last, you know, couple decades are citing this as a particular, you know, source of inspiration for them to go into, you know, filmmaking or very influential on their style. It's, it's impossible to really separate how important this movie is to opening up the non-linear narrative storytelling to a mainstream audience. Like that is something that we see regularly now that wouldn't really be as prevalent, I don't think, if it weren't for this movie and the success that it received critically and also more importantly by audiences, right? Because critical acclaim is great, but if no one goes to see your movie, it's not going to have the impact that it, it's, it, it has since had. Yeah, when I think of plot structure like this, I think of Pulp Fiction and I think of Memento. Those are the two right. films that come to mind. And Memento was several years later. You know, that wasn't until 2000. And it wasn't nearly as successful, I think, of film. It's kind of got a cult following for Nolan fans, but it was not one right. of his more successful films. So I agree with you. You know, this movie was nominated for seven awards, you know, including Best Picture, which is, is tremendous. It actually won Best Original Screenplay. And it actually even earned Travolta, Jackson, and Uma Thurman actually award nominations, 
you know, so that's anytime you right. get an Oscar nomination, that's, that's tremendous. Right. You get a ton of, you know, award nominations. It won the Palm door at the Cannes festival. So it, it, it's tremendously successful from a monetary standpoint. It was well-received critically. It's been well-reviewed in retrospect. It's been highly influential on filmmaking, both I think directly with filmmakers, you know, in their style and also the way that we are able to tell stories nowadays. And obviously it, it kind of propelled the career of, of Tarantino, who's made, you know, depending on who you talk to, several other highly influential and, and landmark type of, of films after that. He's been more or less been able to make whatever he wants since then. Right. He's basically said, listen, with a small budget, I can make a successful film. And he's been able to do that now throughout his career. And you can take, you know, whatever you think is his weaker films and they're still up there. I mean, you can take anything from, you know, the Kill Bill series that was well-received. You could take, you know, the Grindhouse, Death Proof, that double feature, which maybe yeah. wasn't all that well-received. Inglorious Bastards was a huge success. Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's really been on a high right. and he really can do whatever he wants, whether he wants to retire or work for the rest of his life. That's up to him at this point. Right. I think the proof's kind of in the pudding there. You know, he, he's he been able to kind of jump genres and do different things. He penned a, a Star Trek treatment that they were, you know, almost ready to go with. So he's talked about possibly trying to do like a, a Star Wars movie and um, wanting to do all these different things. And, you know, and almost any actor that he wants, he can get because they want, they want to be part of these different visions. And they've seen what it can do for their, you know, their careers and the parts that he makes. He makes fantastic parts. I think he's a great storyteller. He has, you know, an, an eye for getting the right shots. We, I, I mentioned it earlier, now I'm going to get to follow through on it. Like he has the, the trunk shot, which is an iconic Tarantino shot. Now yep. you have the Mexican standoff. This is an iconic part of yep. Tarantino's films, but he, he creates these really fantastic roles. You know, you're probably going to get a monologue. That's going to be incredible. If you and get one of the leading it, roles, each one of these characters have so much to do. I mean, it's an ensemble movie. It really is. There's really right. no one star here in this movie. And they're all, like you said, they all have so much to do, whether it's di dialogue or monologues, they have right. a ton to do. And th these characters are rich with, you know, uh, giving them opportunities to win nominations and, and Oscars, you know? Right. He, I think he, the thing that he does, and it's what, you know, all the people that want to collaborate with him kind of bank on is that the, the worlds that he builds are, builds are really colorful. So it, it's kind of like an actor's like, like, playhouse it's like oh we're gonna create a character that you can make kind of hammy or you can really have like really just go crazy with and have a fun time and do these really different outlandish off the wall type of takes that you might not get to do you know in other films and with other directors where you can go off the rails a little bit and he's gonna be like that's 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 good let's do that yeah i agree with you and just comparing to one of his other contemporaries in nolan who we've talked about many times here it's amazing how we can talk about their brilliance, but how different they are. Right. I mean, a Nolan film, you're usually looking at much more plot driven, 
mm-hmm. much more plot devices and much more, it's a tighter as far as the story they're trying to tell. Right. But here you have, as you said, these rich characters in this playground and it kind of lets, I think the word colorful, you said it best and that they're given so much room to, to work with. Right. While you look at characters in, in Nolan films, not that they're bad, but they're very tight. They're right. very much written in a scripted way. Right. I think, I think, yeah, that's a, a great, you know, a great point is that you can be, you can have two directors that are brilliant, but have very different approaches. You know, the Nolan films feel like kind of laser focused, like we know what type of a performance we want, and this is what, you know, we need, and this is what we want you to do. And then I think with a, a Tarantino, it's just given a lot more freedom. He's like, this is what we're going for. You know, you're going to say the words, the words are as they're on the page, but how you deliver them is kind of going to be up to you. You know, we're going to have this feel for the character and, but what's, and just go. But what's crazy, and I agree with you, is that it can be that, I say the word loose as far as the interpretation for the actors, but in the same respect, Tarantino is, is always rewarded for his screenwriting. So, you know, this right. movie in particular he was actually considered, he was awarded for his screenwriting and it's considered his masterpiece because of the screenwriting. Yet in the same respect, we're saying the actors have freedom to play and have a good time with the, the script that's written for them. So it's interesting. They can be both at the same time. Right. Definitely. It's, it's, you know, there's a balancing act, right? Different, different directors uh, have different approaches and it's, it is, I think the, the great part about having this hall of fame and looking at all these different types of films and filmmakers is like, not, there's not a, a single way to have <laughs> like achieve success, right? You can have the approach of Tarantino. You can have something that's like a little more colorful and a little more freedom. You could have like a David O. Russell, which is like very much like I've written these words and you're not going to say anything that's not on the page. Oh, some directors are extremely strict. And then right. if you even add a single line of a, a right. word to a line, or if you leave a word out, that will be completely stopped. Right. And you start that, you know, right. start it all over again, that take. You have, yeah, and you have uh, frequent, <laughs> frequent uh, subject on the, on the podcast, Martin Scorsese, who regularly had like 100, 100 takes for a scene. Or you have Clint Eastwood, who apparently wouldn't ever say action. He would say, he would just say, Yeah, some directors like Go one ahead take. Now. Yeah. He wouldn't even say, he never said action <laughs> because, so there's a story with Clint Eastwood, he wouldn't say action because from his time doing spaghetti western, they would say action and scare the horses. So he says he he treats actors like horses. So he doesn't scream action. He just says, "You can go ahead now." I like that. Yeah, so that's awesome. These, or or we could talk about approach of Zack Snyder, where the whole movie's in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, there's just all these different approaches to to greatness. Who's yeah. to say what's the greatest? <laughs> who are we? Who are we to say who's good and who's not? So, Mark, that's going to bring us to how well this movie is received. You said that before. Rotten Tomato holds this movie at a approval rating of 92%. It has an average rating of 9.2 out of 10. So you're talking about it's it's universally loved. You're going to find, I'd say, one out of 10 people that the movie just doesn't connect with them because it is, right. I think, over the top, as we said, in some of the colorful dialogue, some of the violence. But the other nine out of 10 people, you have to appreciate and respect what this movie was trying to do and successfully does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, most importantly, more important than Rotten Tomatoes or being in IMDb's top 250 or the Palm Door or the Oscars, that it has an enthusiastic two thumbs up from Mark. 
Uh, and I think that's what everyone, every filmmaker is really, really going to be shooting for that going forward. Yeah, actually, Zack Snyder wrote a letter after our last podcast. <laughs> he said all he wanted was two thumbs up from Mark. And now he said he's going to stop making movies. So I hope you're happy. You're welcome. You're welcome, world. <laughs> if I so, have that type of power, you guys are so welcome. So, Mark, the movie Pulp Fiction is probably one of the most quotable films of our Hall of Fame yet. There are lines of dialogue that people discuss in everyday pop culture. It's it's considered uh, a touchstone of a postmodern film. Yeah. It has influenced tons of films. It has been influenced. The film itself pays homage to countless films before it. You can look at film throughout the decades and you can see when Tarantino was paying homage. And I think this style of film is now, we see it often. We see movies like Pulp Fiction every year that I don't think existed before it. Yeah, it's it's really been, again, we, I, I don't want to kind of hammer the same point home, but it's it's so largely influential, both with style and structure. And I think the structure part is like, really important to to kind of think back if you weren't a big fan of the film you might not it might not have connected with you and like you were saying Matt you could be the one in ten where the film didn't connect with you but even if the film didn't connect with you you just have to kind of acknowledge or if you haven't known it before that it opened up different types of narrative storytelling that wouldn't have been available otherwise so even if the story doesn't connect with you the fact that this did connect with so many people has influenced the way media is structured for you now. I 100% agree. And I think we will definitely be talking about more Tarantino films in the future because he definitely has several films that are worthy. And this one, I feel like we had to talk about first Mark because I think this movie is unanimous in being his most significant and his masterpiece not to say it's not everyone's favorite. He has other excellent films. And I don't even know if, if you'd consider this your favorite of his films, but it, it really did some special things. And that's why I thought we should talk about it first. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about this film. It was really kind of seminal in, you know, my movie watching, you know, history and kind of shaped the, the types of movies that I would seek out. Prior to seeing this movie, I think I, I had a, a more narrow type of, scope obviously i was like early teens but you know seeing a, a movie that was so different really opened up the the possibilities in my mind for stories that i thought i would be able to enjoy so it was very like seminal in my movie watching history so you know i couldn't be happier that we're you know inducting this into our hall of fame and we'll we'll definitely be if i have anything to say about it, we'll be we'll be touching back on more tarantino films in the future that sounds great so Mark, uh, I think we will close our conversation of Pulp Fiction there. Was there anything before we close off, anything else you wanted to touch upon? I just, you know, wanted to to acknowledge that, you know, we have a, a very brief cameo in this movie from Steve Buscemi as Buddy Holly. I just thought in my head and I, I wanted to make sure I acknowledged that. I also was thinking about the movie and they're talking about a $5 milkshake and wanting to see what a $5 milkshake tasted like. That's basically just called a milkshake now in 2021. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you can find seven, eight or $10 milkshakes, but yeah. <laughs> I just want, I just want the Tarantino film food places to exist in real life. 
like jackrabbit slim seems like the coolest place like a 50s themed restaurant where you have people sitting in cars and 50 celebrities that would be so awesome he really likes and i've never thought about it but he likes filming in some of these different food areas i mean even there's multiple scenes in diners in this i think he does enjoy the conversation of food and i don't think i've ever truly noticed that before until talking about it right now yeah, I, I wish that that existed. And I've always been searching out for a, a big kahuna burger to have that Hawaiian burger joint and have an ice cold, I think it was a, uh, a tasty beverage to wash it down. So well, there are dreams that I haven't achieved yet in my life, but there's still time. Well, I think like you, Mark, I think this movie hit me at a certain time too, where I probably hadn't experienced too many rated R racy, violent, over-the-top films like this, and the dialogue definitely drew me in. And I think before that, I was probably watching a lot of PG-13 comedies and PG-13 action movies. And I think this, I think it it did, it broadened the type of movies that I wanted to see going forward. And I wanted to see things that might have been more dramatic or more dialogue heavy than usually I'd be looking for films that had over-the-top action. I think I matured my what I what I wanted to view. So I, I think I'm in that same uh, boat as you. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually just kind of touched on another point I wasn't even thinking about. Like something like this movie that was a little more dialogue heavy, especially when you're like, uh, you know, in your preteen to early teen years, you're just looking for like, like just more punchy. Yeah. Give me more punchy. And this is like, oh, the, the words sometimes can be as interesting as the punchy. Yeah, I think it took a while for me to appreciate dialogue and now i can enjoy a drama as much as any film out there and doesn't have to be any action or explosions or even hilarious moments and you realize that sometimes those are the most powerful movies and right tarantino says it best i mean with his his dialogue no one says it better right i mean very few right yeah and and you know if if the end result is that we're we're more willing to see films with great dialogue that's worth an uncomfortable gimp scene <laughs> if you really think about it if you really think about it but don't think about it too much don't, don't think about the gimp scene too much <laughs> let's just, just pretend know that it's worth let's it. pretend that never happens yeah yeah just go our separate ways just so, like Marcellus Wallace and, and Butch did So, Mark, I want you to bring us home. Where can people see you on the interwebs? If you're looking for, you know, something to do, you can always visit me on Twitch. I'm on twitch.tv slash UrsusFidelis or on social media, Instagram.com or Twitter.com slash UrsusFidelisTV. Excellent. And I like to, as always, thank you, Mark, for joining me on this voyage. And thank you, Matt, for having me along on the adventure. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. We will definitely be back next time and be sure to contact us and let us know what you think. Thanks, guys, for for hanging around. From Mark and Matt, thank you for listening to the Hall of Fame movie podcast. Check us out on Instagram at Hall of Fame pod or email us at the Hall of Fame pod at gmail.com. Please leave us a review and be sure to tune in next time.